A cart rumbles along a rough track, deep in the English countryside. The wheels wobble and creak as they rattle over dried-out ruts. The horses snort and puff as they haul their heavy load. The swish and crack of the cart driver's whip keeps them plodding steadily forward. There's no need for him to ring a bell or shout down to any other road users. You can hear this cart coming from a mile away. As it jolts along, it makes a metallic, jangling sound, almost like music. It's the sound of money, or rather, things that can be turned into money. This cart is one of many being driven around some of the richest monasteries in England. Everywhere it arrives, royal officials riding behind it tether their own horses and demand to see the abbot or whoever's in charge. They lead the abbot into his office, sit him down and explain what they've come for. Gold plate, silver chalices, candlesticks, statues. If it glitters, they'll take it. Oh, and while they're here, they'll also take something that doesn't glitter. Wool. Abbeys are the biggest sheep farmers in a country where sheep farming is the most lucrative industry. So when shearing time comes, the carts will be back to pick that up too. It's a big ask, bordering on daylight robbery. The abbots sometimes protest, but if they do, the royal officials whip out a copy of a very important letter that has been sent to the most senior politicians running the country. It's a long one, so they'll helpfully point to the most pertinent bit. It reads, The whole of the gold and silver of the churches you are with careful attention to receive from the prelates of the churches. This means that whatever precious metals the church has, they're duty-bound to hand over. But don't worry, the officials say in their most reassuring tones. This is a loan, not a stick-up. They point to the next bit of the letter. You are to assure them by your oath that full restitution will be made for the same. In other words, we'll pay you back one day. Then for the clincher, they point out the name of the sender. And once they do that, it would take a very foolish abbot to refuse. Because this is a letter from none other than Richard the Lionheart, King of England. Rumours have been flying about that the king is dead. This letter proves he's not. Unfortunately, it proves something else too. Richard may be alive and kicking, but he's doing his kicking at the pleasure of Henry VI, Emperor of Germany. Richard was shipwrecked and captured by his enemies on his way back from the Third Crusade just before Christmas 1192. They sold him to the German Emperor. It's now summer 1193. The letter has been composed at the Emperor's court in Hagenau, and Richard will become a permanent resident there unless everyone in England puts their hands in their pockets. Deep in their pockets.
Richard has ordered not only his English abbots, but the barons, knights, and just about anyone else who looks like they can afford it to throw into a pot to pay the vast fee Henry is demanding to set him free. The emperor wants a hundred thousand silver marks, a true king's ransom. It's impossible to do a direct currency conversion across the centuries, but this is roughly what his crusade cost in the first place. Today we're talking billions, not millions, maybe tens of billions. Nevertheless, Richard has every faith that the sum will be raised. Partly because England is rich, partly because it's him asking, and partly because he's instructed his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, to run this blockbusting medieval GoFundMe. She's going to send Richard the names of everyone who pays up, and how much. He says that's, So we may know how much we are bound to return thanks to each. There's a promise in there, and just a hint of menace too. Richard is in the direst straits any king in living memory has been in. Will he wriggle out? Only one thing's for certain. If he does, there's going to be some very serious payback for anyone who hasn't helped him. The Lionheart is never more dangerous than when he's cornered. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. Season 2 of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 8, A King's Ransom. The last we heard from Richard, he was banged up in a castle on the top of a mountain in the backwaters of Germany, singing the blues. Not a super promising situation for the man who was supposed to be the most powerful monarch in Western Europe and the saviour of Christianity. It may have felt especially bleak to Richard, given his family history. Richard's great-grandfather, Henry I, imprisoned his brother and rival for the crown, Robert Curthose, for 35 years, allowing him to die in jail of old age. Then there's Richard's mother, Eleanor. Remember season one? Richard's father, Henry II, locked Eleanor up for getting involved in the Great Rebellion, known as the War Without Love, and kept her in some form of house arrest or day release for 15 years. So the omens for getting out soon aren't great. On the other hand, Richard does have a few things working in his favour. One of them is the fact that he has some trusty and loyal supporters on the outside, chief among them Eleanor herself. Plus, there's the delicate politics that his jailer, the German emperor, has to negotiate. It isn't easy being a king behind bars, but being the man who's holding a king prisoner isn't that easy either. So before we go any further with our story, we should probably get our heads around the big picture of European politics at the beginning of 1193. To start with, just who is Henry VI? Well, the German emperor is the boss of a huge swathe of territory that stretches through central Europe into what's now northern Italy. 
he also has his sights set on becoming king of Sicily. That's a massive tranche of land, and in theory it makes him a very powerful man. But being top dog in Germany is kind of complicated. The position is elected, and unlike being king of England or France, you're much more of a first among equals with the other princes of the German states. In practice, that means you're very prone to rebellions. And in 1193, Henry VI is dealing with two big ones going on at once. He's also trying to organise a military campaign to go and take that Sicilian crown. If there's one thing he needs more than anything else, it's a war chest. Which is what makes Richard so attractive to him. The English king spent the whole of the Third Crusade throwing money around and being flashy about it. He may as well have had Get Rich Quick painted on his forehead. That said, in the Middle Ages, kings can't just go around kidnapping each other for no good reason. By taking custody of Richard, Henry is already putting himself in the bad books of people like, you know, the Pope. You see, popes authorise crusades. The deal on offer to all crusaders is that their property is protected by the guarantee of the church while they're crusading. That arrangement will look very shaky if the pope stands by while the actual leader of the third crusade is held for ransom on his way home. So in taking Richard prisoner, Henry is bringing a lot of potential heat on himself. He has to justify what he's doing. Which is why, almost as soon as Richard is captured and handed over to him, Henry sets about spreading the word that Richard is basically a war criminal and that Henry is going to personally put him on trial. The accusations Henry plans to make against the Lionheart will include betraying the crusade by making a deal with Saladin, having high-ranking Christian politicians in the Holy Land assassinated, and anything else Henry can think of to pad out the list. This is partly a PR exercise for Henry. It's also designed to pile pressure on Richard, potentially even making him fear he'll be executed. Except, even at the lowest point of his imprisonment, Richard knows he isn't ever going to lose his head at Henry's hands. It's the Middle Ages, but it's not crazy town. There are rules. For kings, at least. What's more, Richard knows his worth. He's in a bind, but if Henry kills him, which he won't, or keeps him locked up forever, which he could if he's stupid enough, then the German emperor isn't going to see a penny of Richard's money. Which means, at some point, Henry is going to have to negotiate and accept a deal. The price is going to be high, really high, but it can't be insane. What Richard has to do is let Henry work that out for himself, while he finds the money. And that's where Eleanor comes in, along with all the other solid politicians Richard put in place in England while he was away. If they've done their jobs, the Plantagenet Empire will be just about hanging together, and they should be able to tap it for whatever sum is agreed for the ransom. 
Yes, those are two big ifs. Yes, things could be a lot better at this point. But if Richard holds his nerve and continues to act like the king he knows he is, then he might just come through his jailhouse nightmare in one piece. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. At Easter in 1193, Emperor Henry VI puts Richard on trial at the Imperial Court. The court, which moves with the Emperor wherever he goes, is spending the holiday season in the southwest German city of Speer, on the bank of the River Rhine. If you're an enthusiastic royal watcher, this trial is one for the ages. The sheer number of rubberneckers is astonishing. Thousands, even tens of thousands of people make up the imperial court, and Easter is the biggest religious festival of the year. Absolutely anyone who can blag their way into the great hall of the Grand Imperial Palace for the trial is there, making bets on the outcome. The cavernous space, hung with priceless tapestries and dripping with bling, is now also filled with excited gossiping and whispering. The defendant is, of course, one of the most famous men in Europe. So is the judge. It's part of a king's job to act as the highest judge in his land, and Henry is especially keen to oversee this one himself. 
Around them are bishops and princes, nobles and barons. As Richard looks around the court, he can see some friendly faces. There's William Longchamp. We met him last episode, trying to get out of England disguised in a green frock. He's not winning any popularity contests at home, but Richard trusts him. Then there's Hubert Walter. He's an old pal and fellow crusader, a churchman who was in the Holy Land with Richard for a while, but came back separately and avoided shipwreck. When he hears Richard's in trouble, he's more or less the first person who comes to visit him in prison. Richard has made him Archbishop of Canterbury and has him shuttling back and forth between England and Germany, carrying the king's commands. Eleanor's not there, nor is Richard's conniving brother John. As we'll hear next episode, John is back home doing everything he can think of to make sure Richard stays in jail. But there is another Plantagenet there giving Richard the thumbs up. It's his cousin Otto, a German nobleman who's quietly hoping he might take over as emperor himself one day. It may not be a big squad, but it's a loyal one. Enough to give Richard a bit of confidence. Not that he really needs it, because, against all the odds, Richard is loving this. He's in trouble, but he's the centre of attention. He has a chance to show the world that you can lock him up, but you can't squash his spirit. And there's the small fact that he already knows exactly what the outcome of the trial will be. The terms of the deal have been thrashed out in advance. The amount he'll pay to Henry, a lucrative marriage he'll agree to, joining one of his nieces to Leopold, Duke of Austria's son. All the trial is now is a performance, and Richard's in the mood to perform. The chroniclers who write about the way Richard conducts himself on trial at Speyer are blown away. Off the stand, he's cool, calm, collected and charming. When it's his turn to be questioned by the Emperor, he's the star of the show. The German Emperor lays out damning accusations that Richard betrayed the Crusade. But Richard responds with a captivating story of the Crusade from his own viewpoint. An absolutely heroic one, obviously. When it's put to him, he wasn't the greatest ally to Philip Augustus. He says he doesn't know what the French king's problem is, except that he's probably jealous that Richard's more successful than him. The crowd lap up the drama. When Richard's accused of having ordered the murder of Conrad of Montferrat, he scoffs. If I want to kill someone, he says, I pick up my sword and do the job myself. One of Philip Augustus's official court poets has come along to see the action unfold. He writes an account of what happened, and even he has to hand it to his master's nemesis. Under questioning, he says, Richard spoke so eloquently and regally, in so lion-hearted a manner, that it was as though he had forgotten where he was and the undignified circumstances in which he had been captured. It's as if, the poet says, he's just hanging out in his own court. At the end of the trial, 
Richard emerges triumphant from what should have been an ordeal. All he has to do is hand over the ransom. Which brings us back to where we kicked off. With dozens of carts rumbling around England, tapping up churchmen and nobles alike, waving the royal begging bowl under their noses. 100,000 marks is a massive sum to try and extract from a kingdom that has already been taxed to the hilt to pay for the crusade in the first place. And that's not all. In the wrangling that follows the trial, Henry actually raises the ransom to 150,000 marks. Then he says he also wants 50 fighting ships and 200 knights on loan for a year, so that he can finally go down and conquer Sicily. Oh yeah, and one more thing. He wants Richard to formally resign the English crown and then be handed it back as a vassal state of the German Empire. In theory, this will mean that England is part of the German Empire and the German Emperor can overrule Richard if he doesn't like his policies. Not all of these demands are made at once. Actually, they come out bit by bit over the course of months of politicking at the German court. It's exhausting for Richard, who's not the most patient guy at the best of times. It's nerve-wracking for everyone else. By the summer, though, Richard and Henry have agreed to final terms. All that's left to do is wait for the emergency tax collectors in England to do their work. And they deliver. It's a testament to the incredible political energy of Eleanor of Aquitaine and Hubert Walter that by Christmas they've pulled together enough of the money demanded by Henry that he has agreed to free Richard formally in the new year. This tells you how rich the Plantagenet Empire still is. And it tells you just how much they all want their king and crusading hero to return. Or at least almost all of them do. There are two people who aren't so keen on seeing Richard become a free man again. Two people who have spent his whole imprisonment high-fiving each other and finding ways to asset-strip the Plantagenet Empire. That's right. French King Philip Augustus and Richard's brother John. The devious duo were so keen on keeping Richard banged up abroad that they actually offered to outbid whatever he could raise if Henry VI would throw away the key. When word leaks that Henry is going to do no such thing and that the terms of Richard's release have been set, Philip dashes off a note to John, telling him that the fat is really in the fire. Look to yourself, he writes, the devil is loose. That's next time on This Is History. Before you go, just a reminder that the Plantagenet drama doesn't end here. If you get on This Is History Plus, then you'll discover that every Tuesday when episodes drop, I also release an extra episode full of weird, wonderful and sometimes completely random stuff we don't have time for in the main story. What's more, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. 
Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast. Hi everybody. Before we go, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you for listening to This Is History. We hope you're loving the show as much as we love making it, and we want to hear from you. Your feedback goes a long way, and it only takes a few minutes. Just head to thisishistory.fans on the browser of your choice to answer a few questions. We're so excited to hear from you. Thanks for listening.